This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On June 24th, 1947, a private aviator and businessman named Kenneth Arnold was flying from Chihalas, Washington across the state to Yakima in a Cal Air A-2 on a business trip. He'd heard about a U.S. Marine Corps C-46 transport plane that had crashed near Mount Rainier. More importantly, he'd heard about the $5,000 reward the government was offering for its discovery. That day was ideal flying weather, with clear blue skies and only mild winds. So Kenneth Arnold decided to take a detour and go hunting for the crashed plane. But he never found the plane crash. So just before 3 o'clock that afternoon, when he was flying at an altitude of about 9,200 feet near Mineral, Washington, he decided to give up his search and head home. He turned his plane eastward towards Yakima. He soon began to see a bright flashing light in the distance. Arnold was afraid that he may have crossed into the flight path of another plane. But when he scanned the skies around him, the only other plane he could see was a DC-4 behind him to his left about 15 miles away. Less than a minute later, Arnold saw a series of bright flashes off to his left, just north of Mount Rainier. He wasn't sure what the flashes were. Probably just reflections off his airplane's windows, he guessed. He tried rocking his plane from side to side to see if his assumption was correct, but the flashes persisted. He removed his glasses and rubbed his eyes. He even tried rolling down his window, but the flashes kept going. For a few moments, he thought he might be looking at a flock of geese. But geese weren't reflective the way these objects were. And whatever they were, they were fast, too. Much faster than any bird. By the time they zipped out of sight, he'd had time to calculate their airspeed. By Arnold's estimations, whatever those objects were, they had to be clocking in at over 1,700 miles per hour. After Kenneth Arnold landed in Yakima, he told everyone he could about the strange objects he'd seen. No one had any good explanation for him. Some fellow pilots suggested perhaps he'd seen a top-secret missile test. Or perhaps he really had seen a flock of birds. None of the explanations people offered fit what Arnold was convinced he'd seen. Later on, when a newspaper reporter caught wind of Arnold's strange sighting, the pilot tried describing their movement as similar to a saucer skipping across the water. The reporter was apparently only half listening, because by the time the story hit the papers, he'd twisted what Arnold said and coined a phrase that would live on forever after. Flying saucers. Back in the 1950s, physicist Enrico Fermi famously asked, Where is everybody? After getting into a discussion with a fellow scientist over the prospects for life elsewhere in the universe. Fermi postulated that with at least 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone, which was just one of more than 100 billion other galaxies, the odds had to be in the favor of there being other intelligent civilizations out there. But as Fermi pointed out, there was a paradox to that line of thinking as well. 
If there were as many different intelligent civilizations out there as the mathematical probability said there should be, why had none of them ever made their presence known on Earth before? But there are plenty of people on this planet who believe that not only have aliens visited Earth, but they've been dropping mothership-sized clues to their existence all along. A National Geographic poll from a few years ago showed that a whopping 77% of the public believes that Earth has been visited by creatures from another planet at some point in history. But some true believers take things a whole lot further than the casual UFO enthusiast. Throughout history, there have been certain individuals who believed that they were in possession of secret knowledge about UFOs and alien life on Earth that was unknown to the general public. And whether you believe yourself or are a hardcore skeptic, there's one fact about a few of these true believers that's impossible to deny. Some of the people who claim to possess such secret knowledge about UFOs have vanished into thin air. I'm Nate Hale, the illegitimate love child of Mulder and Scully, and this is The Conspirators. In March of 2017, a 24-year-old Brazilian psychology student named Bruno Borges vanished without a trace. Well, without a trace isn't exactly accurate. In fact, he left behind quite a bit of evidence. What it all means, though, has yet to be determined. Borges is a known UFO enthusiast, as well as having a huge obsession with the Illuminati. In the weeks before his disappearance, he'd been hinting to friends and family that he was about to reveal some massive secrets about the universe that would, in his own words, change humanity forever. He borrowed several thousand dollars from his family members to help complete his secret project. When Borges' parents went away on a month-long trip, the young man got busy. He worked tirelessly over the month his parents were gone to complete his project. Two days before he disappeared, he finished it. And what a project it was. He covered every inch of his bedroom walls, floor, and ceiling with coded writing and symbols. He hired a sculptor to come and build a life-size statue of 16th century philosopher Giordano Bruno, who predicted alien life in the center of the room. He also left behind 14 encrypted books that he claimed contained all the secrets he wanted to impart to the world about aliens and the true nature of reality itself. If you have a chance, you really should look up photos or videos of the bedroom. Regardless of what you might think of Borges, the work he did is pretty impressive to see. Photographs of the complex coded messages were uploaded to the internet. One page of the text was deciphered and proved to contain computer code. One of the passages from that page said, It is difficult as an adult to understand that you were wrongly taught what you suspected was correct since you were a child. Investigators still haven't deciphered the rest of the manuscripts or other codes yet, so we still don't know what this grand secret is that Borges claimed to have uncovered about the nature of reality. We do know that after Bruno left home, he took a taxi to a local hotel, which is the last place he was seen by anyone. The only items we know he had with him were a backpack and a camera. Although we don't know where he went after arriving at the hotel, some people suspect he ventured off into the woods behind the building. 
Those woods are known to sometimes be used for late-night gatherings. Some reports have said that Bruno may have recently been invited to join a mysterious church, and that he'd gone so far as to order himself a ritual cloak. There's still plenty we don't know about Bruno Borges' mysterious disappearance. We don't know what the mysterious codes and manuscripts say. We don't know who this strange church is that invited him to join. We of course still don't know where Bruno went. Perhaps most chilling of all, the last known CCTV footage of Bruno appears to show him running away from something. As you can probably imagine, Bruno Borges isn't the first UFO enthusiast to ever feel that they have unlocked some deeper secrets about the universe. More than 30 years ago, there lived a man named Granger Taylor, who so believed that he was in direct contact with an alien intelligence that he went and built his own flying saucer. Oh, and there was also one other thing Taylor had in common with Bruno Borges. On the evening of November 29, 1980, Granger Taylor mysteriously vanished, leaving only more questions than answers. George Orman Taylor, better known as Granger, was born on Vancouver Island on October 7, 1948. Vancouver Island is a logging and fishing town nestled in the Canadian province of British Columbia. When he was a young boy, his father drowned in an accident near the family's cabin on Horn Lake. He was a stocky young man who grew up to be a big and burly adult. Family photos of him show him in a wrestling ring tossing his friends around. His impressive strength and imposing figure was in direct contrast to his shy and quiet personality. Some people thought he was odd because of how quiet he was. One of his oldest friends, Bob Nielsen, described Cranger Taylor as an eccentric genius. From a young age, Taylor demonstrated a remarkable mechanical aptitude. He dropped out of school in the eighth grade and began working as a mechanic's apprentice. But after one year of the apprenticeship, he went into business for himself and began working as a welder and mechanic. He soon gained a reputation among his friends and family as the boy who could fix anything. Taylor had an impressive list of accomplishments at a young age. When he was only 14, he built his own single-cylinder automobile, which later went on display at the Duncan Forest Museum. At age 17, he managed to rebuild a bulldozer that other mechanics much older than he was had given up as a total loss. In 1969, Taylor plowed his way through a half-mile of dense forest to get to the broken-down remains of a vintage locomotive that had been abandoned during the Great Depression and left to rust. Much of what was valuable about the locomotive had already been scavenged, including the wheels and drive shafts, which had been removed back during World War II. A tangle of trees had grown up through the locomotive's frame. Taylor managed to extricate the engine from all the growth and drag it back to his mother and stepfather's yard, where it joined all sorts of other old tractors, rusting cars, and steam pots from donkey engines he had salvaged over the years. Less than two years later, Taylor managed to restore the locomotive back to its former glory, using his own hands, tools, and intellect. In 1973, the province of British Columbia purchased the steam engine and put it on display at the British Columbia Forest Discovery Center. By the time he was fully grown, Taylor had shot up to a full 6 foot 3 and 240 pounds. His friends took to calling him Gentle Ben after the bear on a popular TV show. Taylor reached a point in his life where he'd felt he'd mastered all manner of ground vehicles and how they worked which led him to start looking to the skies for new challenges. He got his pilot's license and bought a vintage P-40 Kitty Hawk warplane. 
Like the locomotive, he restored the plane himself with no prior knowledge of its workings. When he was finished, the plane was put on display for two years outside a local store, until a restorer of vintage aircraft from Manitoba purchased it for $20,000. But Taylor wasn't interested in limiting himself to just earthly vehicles. He long held an interest in unidentified flying objects. Reports of UFOs, aliens, and space encounters were huge in the 1970s. Although there had long been a lot of public interest in the phenomenon, ever since Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting all the way back in 1947, the 70s saw a huge explosion in the number of alleged UFO encounters. Books and magazines about UFOs filled the newsstands. Movies like Close Encounters of the Third Kind and TV shows like In Search Of became huge cultural phenomenon. It was right around this time that Taylor told a close friend of his named Robert Keller that he was going to build his own spaceship. For the better part of a year, Taylor collected parts from the local dump and welded together his very own combination flying saucer and man cave in his parents' yard. He assembled together two satellite receiving dishes and put the whole structure up on metal stilts. Inside, he decorated the space with a TV, a couch, and a wood-burning stove. Taylor often slept inside his spaceship, and he'd spend nights there as he drifted off wondering about what it would take to power the real thing. He began purchasing every UFO book and magazine he could get his hands on. He scoured every eyewitness report of a UFO sighting, trying to glean everything he could about their possible method of propulsion and navigation. What made UFOs fly became a singular obsession. Anytime he was out with his family or friends, Taylor found a way to steer the conversation around to the subject. But it didn't end there. Pretty soon, Taylor began to tell his friends that he believed he was receiving telepathic messages from alien visitors. A friend of Taylor's named Bob Nielsen said that Taylor began hearing what he claimed to be mental communications with somebody from another galaxy. He couldn't see them. He only heard their voice. As the conversation went on, Taylor asked about the method of propulsion for the alien spacecraft. The only thing the alien told him is that it was related to magnetism. Then a few days later, Taylor received another message from his extraterrestrial friend, and he was thrilled to share the news. The aliens were inviting him to go with them on a 42-month journey across the galaxy. They hadn't told him precisely when this journey was going to happen, but that it would be soon, and he needed to prepare himself. Most of Taylor's friends and family thought this was just another bit of the man's regular eccentricity. Also, it was well known he was dropping acid regularly around this time. It doesn't seem very difficult to believe he really thought he was hearing voices under those circumstances. A week before Taylor's disappearance, he took a group of his buddies out for a night in the town for what he described as his going-away party. On Friday, November 28th, Ranger Taylor sat down with his stepfather, Jim, in the man's bedroom and had a long talk with him. Taylor told him how grateful he was for all he'd done for him over the years and how much he loved him. Jim had no idea that this would be the last time he'd ever see his stepson. Taylor's mother, Grace, never got to see her son on that final day. She was off on vacation at the time and wouldn't learn of her son's disappearance until later. On that last night, Taylor wrote out two wills leaving detailed instructions about what to do with his belongings. In the documents, it's notable that he crossed out the word deceased and replaced it with the word departed. He also wrote a goodbye note for his mother and stepfather. It read, Dear mother and father, 
I have gone away to walk aboard an alien spaceship, as recurring dreams assured a 42-month interstellar voyage to explore the vast universe, then return. I am leaving behind all my possessions to you, as I will no longer require the use of any. Please use the instructions in my will as a guide to help. Love, Ranger. On Saturday, November 29th at around 6 p.m., Granger went to Bob's Grill in town for dinner. Nobody reported anything particularly unusual about Granger's appearance that night. The last person to recall seeing him was a woman named Linda Barron, who worked in the grill's kitchen. The only thing remotely unusual she could remember was that Granger didn't appear to be dressed for a major storm that was on its way. He wore a brown knitted sweater zipped up at the front, with a black t-shirt, jeans, and work boots. Later on, Granger's stepfather Jim would find Granger's coat stuffed inside his Newfoundland Terrier lady's doghouse. That night, hurricane-force winds were recorded. Trees and power lines were down throughout town and the surrounding area. By the next day, people began to pick up the pieces and clean up. Meanwhile, Granger's stepfather was beginning to get worried about his stepson's whereabouts. He contacted the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, who began an investigation. They checked all the local hospitals, as well as running checks on Taylor's passport and other potential leads that might point to where he'd gone. But nothing turned up. They checked his bank records and discovered that his account hadn't been touched. For the next several years, not a single clue turned up as to Taylor's whereabouts. Corporal Mike Demchuk of the RCMP was particularly concerned that no sign ever turned up of Taylor's 1972 Datsun pickup truck. Surely something that large couldn't have vanished too. The Taylors posted rewards in the local newspapers for information regarding their stepson or for the location of the pickup truck, but no one ever responded. In 1981, the pickup's registration expired and was never renewed, which convinced investigators that it was no longer on the road. Both the pickup truck and Granger Taylor were just gone. Vanished. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. To improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. Granger Taylor and Bruno Borges weren't the only people who ever mysteriously vanished that had been linked to unidentified flying objects. On June 6, 1980, a Polish man named Zygmunt Adamski disappeared without a trace. In a case that some ufologists have linked to alien abductions... What makes Adamski's case different from Taylor and Borges, though, is that Adamski actually reappeared several days later. The only problem was he was now very, very dead. Zygmunt Adamski was born in August 1923. He spent much of his adult life in his native Poland until he married his sweetheart Lottie and they moved to Tingley, England in 1957. Zygmunt and Lottie were considered quiet and friendly, and he seemed to get along with everyone which makes the man's death even more puzzling. At 3.30 in the afternoon, Adamski set out on foot from his home to pick up some groceries from the shops in town. There was nothing particularly unusual about the day. Adamski greeted several of his neighbors cordially as he walked by. Those were the last people who ever reported seeing Adamski alive. Like Granger Taylor and Bruno Borges, 
It seemed that Adamski just walked out of his house and vanished without a trace. His disappearance was completely out of character for the man, not to mention the fact that the following day was his goddaughter's wedding, which was an event he'd been looking forward to attending for quite some time. When he failed to reappear, his family and friends began to fear the worst. It turns out they had cause to be frightened. Adamski's body was found five days later, 20 miles away in the town of Todmorden. On June 11th, Adamski's body was found at 3.45 p.m. lying face down on a 12-foot high pile of coal. The coal yard's owner had been through the site between 8 and 11 a.m., which meant however the man's body got there, it had to have been done after 11 a.m. that day. Police arrived on the scene, and from what they could tell, it appeared that Adamski had suffered a heart attack. One thing they couldn't explain is how Adamski got up on top of the coal pile. There was zero evidence that anyone had attempted to climb up and down the coal pile. Some of the witnesses who saw the scene said it was as if Adamski had been deposited up there from above. Yet how could anyone have lowered the man on top of the pile on a sunny summer afternoon without being seen? What made the matter even more puzzling was the condition of Adamski himself. It appeared wherever he'd been over the previous five days, he'd been eating well. Despite being gone for nearly a week, he had only a single day's beard growth on his face. Stranger still, his shirt was missing, and his coat, trousers, and shoes were all crudely fastened, as if it were done by someone who had no idea how any of those items were to be worn. He also had strange burn marks on his neck and shoulders, and all the burns were coated with a gel-like substance that could not be identified. The county pathologist determined that Adamski had died that day sometime between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m., yet the burns he suffered had occurred a couple of days earlier. It took the coroner several months before he finally committed to listing an official cause of death. He finally ruled it a heart attack. A few months after Adamski's body was found, there was another incident that some people have linked to the peculiar circumstances surrounding Adamski's death. A local constable, Alan Godfrey, who was one of the officers who originally responded to the scene of Adamski's death, was called out to investigate another bizarre report. Several cows had been reported to have gone missing from a local estate. It was around 5 a.m. when P.C. Godfrey drove out into the country headed to the scene, when he had to stop abruptly for what he first thought was an overturned bus on Burnley Road. It was no bus. According to the officer, it was a large, diamond-shaped craft floating about five feet off the ground. Rather than get out of his police car, Godfrey took a moment to sketch out what he was seeing in his notebook. The next thing he remembered, Godfrey was still in his patrol car, but the object was no longer floating in front of him. He also wasn't parked in the same place he'd been in what he thought was only a few moments earlier. It was a full half hour later than it should have been, and P.C. Godfrey's shoes were both split along the soles, as if he'd been dragged against his will across the road. When the press heard about Godfrey's story, they nearly destroyed his career in law enforcement over it. So was Godfrey telling the truth about what he saw? It's impossible to say for certain. Although it's almost certainly true considering how badly things went for him after he reported his sighting, that he would have been better off keeping his mouth shut. And what of Zygmunt Adamski? Well, there are two ways of looking at the story. 
If you've ever read the book or even seen the movie Life of Pi, then you might remember the scene where the reporter questions the narrator's version of events and gives a much more plausible, albeit a much more depressing scenario involving cold-blooded murder. Which story do you choose to believe, the narrator asks, the story with the tiger or the story with the murder? In the case of Zygmunt Adamski, there's the version of events which I'm sure has crossed all our minds. That he was abducted by aliens, somehow died in their care, then had his body deposited by them on top of the coal pile. Yet there's another version of events that's a lot more down to earth. It's known that Adamski had been involved in a family squabble with a relative who was in serious marital trouble. The theory is that things turned particularly ugly with the family member, and somehow Adamski was abducted by his own kin, then locked up in a shed somewhere where he came into contact with some battery acid that burned his neck and shoulders. It would also explain where his shirt went if the acid destroyed the garment. The gel-like substance could have been an ointment someone applied to the burn after the fact. Then Adamski suffered a fatal heart attack in captivity, and whoever did it dumped the body on the pile of coal. It's not a perfect story, but it mostly fits the circumstances. Likewise, I'm sure we'd all like to believe that Granger Taylor did get to take his joyride into outer space. But once again, there may be another, more tragic and earthbound explanation. In 1986, almost six years after Granger Taylor's disappearance, a group of forestry workers out near Mount Provost, not far from Taylor's parents' home, found a blast crater and metal shards embedded in one of the trees. Human bone fragments were also found at the scene. Although the bone fragments were never positively identified as belonging to Taylor, most of the police investigators believe that's where they came from. A newspaper article from the time noted that Taylor likely had dynamite for blasting stumps in the back of his pickup truck. A coroner's inquest would later conclude that Taylor had been killed when the dynamite in the back of his truck exploded. Whether this was on purpose or an accident was unknown. As for Bruno Borges, at the time of this recording, he's still missing. Although his family remains hopeful that he's somewhere safe and sound and will eventually return home to them. Here's hoping they're right. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. I have a lot of people to thank this week. For starters, I'd like to thank Jonathan Robinson for visiting the website and making a generous donation by clicking the donate button. I also need to thank my many new supporters on my newly launched Patreon page. I want to thank Sarah, Devin, Nathan, Thomas, Ronnie, Lynn, Mary, Aaron, Rose, and William. All of these people chose to show their support by signing up for my Patreon campaign. You guys are the best. Thanks so much. For their different levels of support, these folks are all going to get a variety of rewards that include, depending on which level they're at, thank you cards with a personal message from yours truly, Stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and of course special exclusive access to my Patreon-only mini-episodes, the next of which will be out at the beginning of July. If you're interested in signing up too and helping support the show, I'll include a link to my Patreon page in the show notes. Another way you can help support us is by subscribing and rating us on iTunes. I check all the time and I love to read new reviews and hear your feedback on the show. 
It also really helps us out in spreading the word throughout the iTunes community. If you're not on iTunes, not to worry, we're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.